Hi, and welcome to The Elegant Mind. I'm Mark Winwood. On May 29th, we'll be experiencing a full moon. It's a very significant full moon, as it signifies in Buddhist communities around the world the anniversary of Siddhartha's enlightenment, the day that Siddhartha Gautama, a prince, a human being, no different than any of us, achieved the enlightened mind and became, in the eyes of many, the Buddha, the awakened one. As you may know, the idea of enlightenment, or sometimes referred to as nirvana, is a somewhat mysterious topic, mysterious subject, being that none of us have experienced authentic, consistent, perfect, pure enlightenment or awakening. But I'd like to share a reading with you. This comes from Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese monk, author, spiritual leader, from a book he wrote called Old Path, White Clouds, which is the story of Siddhartha, Siddhartha Gautama, the man who would become the Buddha. This is a chapter in which Thich Nhat Hanh is describing Siddhartha's achieving of enlightenment. I'd like to share this with you. It's, it's uh, really quite beautiful. Through mindfulness, Siddhartha's mind, body, and breath were perfectly at one. His practice of mindfulness had enabled him to build great powers of concentration, which he could now use to shine awareness on his mind and body. After deeply entering meditation, he began to discern the presence of countless other beings in his own body right in the present moment. Organic and inorganic beings, minerals, mosses and grasses, insects, animals and people were all within him. He saw that other beings were himself right in the present moment. He saw his own past lives, all his births and deaths. He saw the creation and destruction of thousands of worlds and thousands of stars. He felt all the joys and sorrows of every living being, those born of mothers, those born of eggs, and those born of fission, who divided themselves into new creatures. He saw that every cell of his body contained all of heaven and earth and spanned the three times, past, present, and future. It was the hour of the first watch of the night. Gautama entered even more deeply into meditation. He saw how countless worlds arose and fell, were created and destroyed. He saw how countless beings passed through countless births and deaths. He saw that these births and deaths were but outward appearances and not true reality, just as millions of waves rise and fall incessantly on the surface of the sea while the sea itself is beyond birth and death. If the waves understood that they themselves were water, they would transcend birth and death and arrive at true inner peace, overcoming all fear. This realization enabled Gautama to transcend the net of birth and death, and he smiled. His smile was like a flower blossoming in the deep night, which radiated a halo of light. It was the smile of a wondrous understanding, the insight into the destruction of all defilements. He attained this level of understanding by the second watch. At just that moment, thunder crashed and great bolts of lightning flashed across the sky as if to rip the heavens in two. 
Black clouds concealed the moon and stars. Rain poured down. Gautama was soaking wet, but he did not budge. He continued his meditation. Without wavering, he shined his attention on his mind. He saw that living beings suffer because they do not understand that they share one common ground with all beings. Ignorance gives rise to a multitude of sorrows, confusions, and troubles. Greed, anger, arrogance, doubt, jealousy, and fear all have their roots in ignorance. When we learn to calm our minds in order to look deeply at the true nature of things, we can arrive at full understanding, which dissolves every sorrow and anxiety and gives rise to acceptance and love. Looking deeply into the heart of all beings, Siddhartha attained insight into everyone's minds, no matter where they were, and he was able to hear everyone's cries of both suffering and joy. He attained to the states of divine sight, divine hearing, and the ability to travel across all distances without moving. It was now the end of the third watch, and there was no more thunder. The clouds rolled back to reveal the bright moon and stars. Looking up, Siddhartha saw the morning star appear on the horizon, twinkling like a huge diamond. He had seen this star so many times before while sitting beneath the papala tree, but this morning it was like seeing it for the first time. It was as dazzling as the jubilant smile of enlightenment. Siddhartha gazed at the star and exclaimed out of deep compassion, All beings contain within themselves the seeds of enlightenment, and yet we drown in the ocean of birth and death for so many thousands of lifetimes. Siddhartha knew he had found the great way. So that was Thich Nhat Hanh writing Old Path White Clouds, and that chapter specifically describes the enlightenment, the moment of enlightenment that Siddhartha experienced while sitting under what is known as the Bodhi tree in what is today known as the town of Bodh Gaya in northern India. This idea of enlightenment, the topic of enlightenment, is an interesting one. Enlightenment is a word that's been used for many different things, periods of history and, and states of mind and and so just a little bit of a little bit of a discussion on what does it mean from the Tibetan Buddhist side? What does it mean to be enlightened? One way to look at the, to the answer to that question is to look at the etymology of the Tibetan term for Buddha, for the word Buddha. When the Tibetans came to translate the Buddhist scriptures from the original Sanskrit, they focused really closely on the meaning behind the terminologies rather than the literal value of the words themselves. And this includes the word for Buddha, the, uh, the title of the teacher. In Sanskrit, Buddha means the awakened one, indicating the Buddha is a person who has awakened to the true nature of reality. Uh, the Tibetans translated Buddha as Sangye, Sangye, S-A-N-G hyphen G-Y-E, Sangye, which is formed through the conjunction of two terms. The first, which is Sang, S-A-N-G, means to have purified or removed, which indicates 
that a Buddha, an awakened being, an enlightened being, has purified or removed all the elements that cover the true nature of one's mind. That is, the, uh, the eight old habits of ignorance and desire and hatred and other mental poisons. A Buddha is therefore someone who has freed himself or herself from the constraints and blindness of those states of mind. The second part of the word gyi, G-Y-E, has the sense of expanding. Once one has cleared away the obscurations or the veils covering one's own true nature, the innate qualities of wisdom and compassion blossom and expand. Enlightenment is, uh, is therefore to be partly understood in a negative sense is the clearing away of all that is foreign to our fundamental qualities or our Buddha nature as it's referred to. But it's also the revelation of the intrinsically positive qualities of wisdom, compassion, and power through which we can walk endlessly for ourselves, our own benefit, and specifically for the benefit of all beings. So to be enlightened then means, firstly, to free ourselves from the hindrances of an egotistical, overly egotistical view of the world, and then secondly, having freed ourselves to engage in the world for the benefit of all beings. There's a book by uh, Wapola Sri Rahula called What the Buddha Taught, and there's uh, a nice, nice passage in which he describes what it means to be enlightened. I'm going to read uh, once again to you. This is the last I'll read to you in this program today. This is what the Buddha taught, Walpola Sri Rahula. Quote, he who has realized the truth, nirvana, enlightenment, is the happiest being in the world. He is free from all complexities and obsessions, the worries and troubles that torment others. His mental health is perfect, he does not repent the past, nor does he brood over the future. He lives fully in the present. Therefore, he, and by the way, this can also be she, therefore, he appreciates and enjoys things in the purest sense without self-projections. He is joyful, exultant, enjoying the pure life. His faculties pleased, free from anxiety, serene and peaceful. As he is free from selfish desire, hatred, ignorance, conceit, pride, and all such defilements, he is pure and gentle, full of universal love, compassion, kindness, sympathy, understanding, and tolerance. His service to others is of the purest, for he has no thought of self. He gains nothing, accumulates nothing, not even anything spiritual, because he is free from the illusion of self and the thirst for becoming. A description of the enlightened mind, the enlightened being. Certainly a, another way of describing that mind is the elegant, the elegant mind. And this program is the elegant mind brought to you on Valley 104.9 FM, serving the lower Snoqualmie Valley, the towns of Duval and Carnation, Redmond Ridge, and all areas in between. My name is Mark Winwood, and I thank you so much for tuning in and listening to this, to this broadcast.
You know, week after week in talking about the elegant mind and recording these these programs and the promos for these programs, I mentioned the lower Snoqualmie Valley a lot. And I live in Duval, and we have the Snoqualmie River that runs off to the west of town, running from the south to the north. And uh, I decided to investigate what exactly is the lower Snoqualmie Valley. I, I don't know if you're, if you're local and you're listening to this program, you probably have an idea of what we mean by the lower Snoqualmie Valley as opposed to is there an upper Snoqualmie Valley? And what are we talking about here? So a little bit of background on the Snoqualmie Valley and then the lower and upper. So the Snoqualmie Valley, it's a, uh, it's a farming and it's a timber producing region. Uh, we're in western Washington state. We're less than an hour east of Seattle, Seattle area. And the valley stretches. It's, it's a river valley. And the valley stretches from the confluence of the three forks, the south, middle, and north forks of the Snoqualmie River. They all come together at the town of North Bend, and then the Snoqualmie River runs to the north, where it meets up with the Skykomish River, and the two together form the Snohomish River in the town of Monroe, which is where I lived before moving to Duval. So this stretch of river that goes from North Bend all the way up to Monroe forms the uh, Snoqualmie Valley. Snoqualmie Valley is where the river runs through. And some of the towns in the valley are North Bend and Snoqualmie and Preston, Fall City, Carnation, and, uh, and Duval. The upper Snoqualmie Valley is that territory at the top of the Snoqualmie Falls. Everything to the south of the Snoqualmie Falls is the upper Snoqualmie Valley. The Snoqualmie Falls are, are quite beautiful and very significant to the, uh, to the folklore and history of this area. I'll talk a little bit about that. Once we come over the falls and the Snoqualmie River travels to the north, ultimately to, to join the Skykomish River, that is the lower Snoqualmie Valley, and that's where uh, I live in Duval, and that is the area the, that is covered by this uh, broadcast 104.9 Valley Radio 104.9 covering the lower Snoqualmie Valley. So the, the Snoqualmie Valley, Snoqualmie River, etc., is the ancestral home of the Snoqualmie people, the Snoqualmie tribe. The Snoqualmie Indian tribe has been in this valley since who knows when, time immemorial. And it sees the, traditionally has seen the Snoqualmie Falls as being the birthplace, the birthplace of the Snoqualmie people. There's this uh, beautiful idea that the mists that emerge from the falls, the waters crashing onto the rocks below, that the mists carry the thoughts and the prayers of the spirits and ancestors of the Snoqualmie people, while also the water cleanses their thoughts, rushing water provides the strength to keep traditions alive and for the Snoqualmie people to thrive in modern times. The Snoqualmie Indian tribe is currently made up of approximately 500 members. 
And tribal members have lived in the Puget Sound region for, as I said, time immemorial, long before the explorers came to the Pacific Northwest. They hunted deer and elk and fished for salmon, gathered berries and wild plants for food and medicine. And today, the tribe members are uh, are spread out in Snoqualmie and North Bend, Vol City, Carnation, Issaquah, Mercer Island, and Monroe. A little bit of history, Snoqualmie tribe, the tribal members were signatories of the Treaty of Point Elliot in 1855, which reserved Native American tribes in the Puget Sound area, including the Snoqualmie, the right to hunt and fish, live in the places they had done so for thousands of years. At that time, in 1855, the Snoqualmie Indian tribe was one of the largest in the Puget Sound region, totaling around 4,000 members. The tribe lost federal recognition in 1953, but regained Bureau of Indian Affairs recognition in 1999, which allowed the tribe to develop the Snoqualmie Casino, which financially supports the services and resources for tribe members and the local community. So it's a uh, very, besides being very beautiful, so those of you who live here or have been here know, besides being very beautiful and fertile, this area, the lower Snoqualmie Valley, which, which 104.9, Valley Radio 104.9, has the honor of serving this lower Snoqualmie Valley is, is quite historical. And you can, you can feel, you can discern the, the the history the ancient history of the of the people who lived here and continue to live here and it is once again it's a it's a privilege and an honor to be able to serve this community and this area in uh, I mean we're newcomers let's face it I mean I've only been here in Washington State for four years and living in Duval now in the valley for four six months so I am totally a newcomer, but we're all newcomers. We're all newcomers here. Oh my gosh, what a beautiful, what a wonderful place to have settled and to live and to honor. So Valley 104 in the lower Snoqualmie Valley. That's the story. That's who we are, and that's why we're here. And this is The Elegant Mind. My name is Mark Winwood. This is a program that talks about elegant minds. We all have the potential for elegant minds, beautiful minds, peaceful minds, beneficial minds. And in particular, on this program, we discuss the mind sciences, the life sciences that emerged from the Tibetan plateau and have made their way west and are, are the foundation, the basis of many of the Buddhist Tibetan Buddhist or Himalayan Buddhist practices and perspectives that are that we share in. We have meetings. I am the founder of the Chenrisig project. Chenrisig is the Tibetan word for compassion, the icon for compassion, the Chenrisig project. And we're here in Duval and we hold meetings every other Thursday evening here in Duval at uh, Longevity Foods on Main Street across from the subway. We publish a newsletter and we have this radio program which is now being podcast. All of this information is available on our website 
at www.chenrezigproject.org, C-H-E-N-R-E-Z-I-G-P-R-O-J-E-C-T, chenrezigproject.org. Check it out and sign up. Subscribe to our newsletter. It's completely free. Everything we do is completely free. We're holding a film festival here for the public on Saturday, June 9th. We're going to be showing four films that present various ideas and perspectives coming out of the Tibetan traditions at the Duval Visitor Center, Saturday, June 9th, 1 p.m. to uh, about 9.30 p.m. And once again, information for that is available on the website. If you would like to ask questions or make comments or be interviewed on this program, if you have something you'd like to say to the community that might relate to an elegant mind or the elegant mind, please feel free to send me an email. Again, my name is Mark Winwood. Email addressed to the elegant mind at valley1049.org. That's The Elegant Mind at valley1049.org. And I will get that email and respond quickly. So so thank you again for, for being here. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more about enlightenment. And after the break, we'll take a break in a few minutes. But before we do, and traditionally, um, I'd like to share some music with you. This is music that comes from a, uh, a dear friend of mine, an old friend of mine named Bobby Vega. Bobby is a musician. He lives in the San Francisco Bay, north of the San Francisco Bay. He lives up in uh, Sonoma County. He is a, uh, he's a composer, he's a teacher, performer. Uh, he's a bass player, electric bass player. He is world-renowned. He has played with a variety of very well-known, very well-known folks and, and travels, travels the world teaching and working with students and so on. He's, a, uh, he's got a pretty elegant mind itself, certainly when it comes to music. Bobby is an elegant mind, and I'd like to share some of his music with you today. The name of this, the name of the song is Tipping Soup. It's a song that Bobby wrote and recorded with a friend of his named Chris Rosbach. I hope you enjoy. When the song is over, there'll be a brief promo and then we'll be back to discuss in some further depth the idea of the enlightened mind, the elegant mind, the elegantly enlightened mind. Again, this is Mark Winwood, 104.9, serving the lower Snoqualmie Valley, and I bring you the music of Bobby Vega.
Hi, we're back. This is Mark Winwood with The Elegant Mind. This program comes to you broadcast on weekend mornings from 10 to 11, 104.9 FM. That's Valley 104.9 FM, serving the lower Snoqualmie Valley, the towns of Duval, Carnation, and Redmond Ridge. If you're streaming on the internet, if you'd like to stream on the internet during those times, we are located at www.valley1049.org. And something new, you can also listen to this program as podcast at www.chenrizikproject, C-H-E-N-R-E-Z-I-G-P-R-O-J-E-C-T dot podbeam, P-O-D-B-E-A-M dot com, podbeam.com we've got a couple of these programs up now as podcasts and we'll be adding them as we as we compile and record these programs week after week after week they're available 24 7 for your listening pleasure so we have been talking about uh, different things the Snoqualmie Valley we've been talking about Siddhartha the Buddha Akadawa the Tibetan holiday that is celebrated around the world on the 29th of May of this year, the full moon, the 29th of May. You know, the Tibetan calendar is a lunar calendar, as are many of the calendars that are followed by uh, the ancient ancient folks, the lunar calendar, and the Tibetan calendar is no different. So the 29th of May is a full moon. It's the moon of Sakadawa. It's the day on which Siddhartha's birth, his enlightenment, and his death are all supposed to have taken place. The same day, the full moon of what is the fourth month in the Tibetan calendar, which corresponds in 2018 with our calendar as taking place in May. Enlightenment. Talking about enlightenment. It's such, it's such a big topic. And, you know, it's really... In many ways, it's the, it's the work of poetry. It's the work of poetry. The enlightened mind, the perfect mind, the formless. The mind is formless. The formless mind, the enlightened mind. How do we even assign words to that? How can we assign words of form to formless ideas and formless concepts? It's not, uh, not something that's very, very simple to do. So there's a word that is used to describe the enlightened mind in the Buddhist teachings. It's a word that comes out of the Sanskrit language, and the word is bodhicitta. Bodhicitta, the enlightened mind, bodhicitta. B-O-D-H-I-C-I-T-T-A, bodhicitta. So bodhicitta is the, it's the heart. It's the heart of the enlightened mind. It is the enlightened mind. When bodhicitta, which resides in each mind in a somewhat dormant form, perhaps, when bodhicitta is cultivated and when it is perfected, it is then enlightenment, bodhicitta. So it's the heart of the enlightened mind. It's the spirit. It's the source and it's the root of the entire Tibetan Buddhist path. And I would put forth perhaps by different, uh, different words, different languages, bodhicitta, the idea of bodhicitta is the heart of every spiritual path. It's the, it's the highest form of altruism. 
It's the highest form of courage. It's the source of all spiritual qualities. And certainly it is the essence of all the teachings of Siddhartha, Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, who achieved, who uncovered, who perfected his own bodhicitta, his own enlightenment sitting under the tree in India on the full moon in the fourth month of the year corresponding here to May 29th, next Tuesday, this coming Tuesday. So Bodhi, let's look at that word for a few moments, Bodhi, B-O-D-H-I. It's a Sanskrit word, and it means enlightenment, Bodhi, full awakening, enlightenment, and Chitta, C-I-T-T-A, is, uh, it means the mind, Bodhicitta, enlightened mind. It refers to the wish to attain enlightenment, to become awakened, to become a Buddha, if you will, to attain enlightenment for the benefit of all sentient beings. So it is a motivation. Bodhicitta is a motivation. It is also the mind itself. The enlightened mind itself is the mind of Bodhicitta, one who engages, who is motivated and committed to uncover and perfect their own mind of bodhicitta is referred to as a bodhisattva. The sattva being uh, a being. Sattva being bodhisattva, enlightenment being. The realization of bodhicitta is quite profound. It's obviously not easy to automatically enter this path and intuitively begin to put the the welfare of others on an equal keel to your own welfare or perhaps even exceed your own welfare in terms of importance. And someone who, again, who cultivates and lives with this realization is called the Bodhisattva. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. The Dalai Lama considers Mother Teresa to have been a Bodhisattva. Jesus is a Bodhisattva. So this idea, this notion of bodhisattvas is not necessarily a Buddhist idea. One not need be a Buddhist to be a bodhisattva. Bodhisattva, the quest for the to uncover and perfect the enlightened mind, is not something that is limited to one path, the Buddhist path, or or uh, or the Hindu path, or the Christian path, or it's a uh, it's a human path. The path is a human path. So the so what is this? What is this thing, this bodhicitta, this enlightened mind? Well, let's start out by considering that it's an essential universal truth. And what is that universal truth? Well, it's the it's the, it's the most pure thought. The most pure thought is the wish and the will to bring all beings to the realization of their highest potential or their own enlightenment. And the Bodhisattva sees and understands this, this crystal nature that exists in each of us. And, and by recognizing the beauty of this potential, this potential within every mind, always has, always has respect, always has respect. The desire to, to engage with others for the, for the other person's benefit it's extremely rare. It's very, we're always looking to, we're always investing. We're always looking for payback. We're always looking, if it's not material, it's, it's emotional, it's psychological, 
We're always looking for people to say thank you in some manner. Whatever we offer, whenever we give something, there's always that thank you that we're looking for, that, that acknowledgement. And, uh, you know, I mean, so many of us try to take advantage of others to profit ourselves. And, and you know, we, this attachment, the entire world is built on it. The entire world is built on it. Big countries overwhelm small countries. Big children take candy from small children. Husbands take advantage of their wives. Wives take advantage of their husbands. I, you know, I make friends with someone because they can benefit me, because they make me feel good, because I like being with them. They spend time with me. They laugh at my jokes. They enjoy the same music, whatever it might be. And it's like this with the rest of the world, you know. Husbands and wives and workers and bosses and teachers and students and everybody wants something. Everybody wants something. So again, so the desire to to engage with others only for their benefit, selflessly for their benefit, is extremely rare, and it is incredibly worthwhile. The uh, Buddha Siddhartha explained that even one moment's thought of this mind dedicated to enlightenment for the sake of others can destroy thousands and thousands of lifetimes of negative self-centered karma. Lama Yeshe, one of, uh, I've never met Lama Yeshe. He is the teacher of my teacher or the, one of the teachers of my teacher. He passed away in 1984 and he, I've, I've read many, many, many of his teachings and seen videos and spoken to people who studied with him and he used to say that, that this idea, this idea of bodhicitta is nuclear in the mind. It's nuclear. It changes everything. It transforms. It changes everything, the idea of bodhicitta. It is powerful. It is powerful. It's, it's atomic energy. It destroys, it destroys the fortress of attachment and greed and ignorance and desire and lust and, and, and jealousy and arrogance. It's incredible, it says, this energy. It, and it's love, but it's not emotional love. It's not emotional love. It's, it's, it's love born of wisdom, not emotion. It, it's love that comes through understanding the relative nature of all beings and, and developing the willingness to bring all beings to their own enlightenment, to their own perfection, to their own happiness. It's, it's love that's born again out of wisdom. Uh, it's, not, it's not partial, it's not discriminatory. The enlightened mind, bodhicitta, the elegant mind, it's not partial. Wherever you go, whoever you meet, you meet rich people or poor people or black or white, you're comfortable. You can communicate. You relate. It's never you versus them or us versus them. You know, we have a, we have a fixed idea. We have a fixed idea that things are this way or that way, good or bad. You know, this is good, that is bad. And, and we don't really understand the different aspects of the human condition, but this, this universal thought, this idea, bodhicitta, the enlightened mind, our narrow mind, our this is good, this is bad, that narrow mind just vanishes automatically. It, it, it's, so, it's so simple, it's so natural. And, 
and we have some space and our life becomes easier. Bodhicitta, the motivation and the practices and ultimately the realization of the enlightened mind, it is a, uh, it's almost like an intoxicant. It's, it, it's an intoxicant of clarity, an intoxicant of clarity that numbs us against pain, fills us with clarity and bliss. It's an, it's an alchemy. It's an alchemy that transforms every action into benefit for others. It's a cloud that carries the rain of positive energy to nourish growing things. It's not a doctrine. It's not, you don't follow a doctrine. You don't, there's no dogma that is associated with bodhicitta. It is a state of mind. It is an inner experience. It is completely individual. It's completely individual. And, you know, as a result of, of it being so individual, it's one of the really kind of fun things about the Buddhist teachings. It's said that you, you never know. You never know who's a bodhisattva. You never know who it is, whoever you're encountering, whatever you're encountering, you just never know if they are on this path to benefit you or not. And frequently they may say things, they may do things that don't appear to be quite so loving and don't appear to be quite so beneficial, but they are, they are. They're, they're, they're done for your growth. We grow when we're challenged. We grow when we're challenged. You know, there's this, this wonderful little metaphor that says that, you know, you pick up a piece of wood. Just walk through the forest and pick up a piece of wood wherever you see one. And, and it's, it's, it's lovely. It's a piece of wood. To make it beautiful, to make it absolutely beautiful, we have to apply abrasion. We have to apply sandpaper. We have to... We have to, through friction, we have to rub it down and rub it down and remove everything that gets in the way of the beauty being experienced. You know, Michelangelo used to say about his, uh, you know, the great sculptor, sculptor Michelangelo, used to say about his, uh, his marble that all he did when he created statues out of marble was he removed what wasn't the statue. A lump of lump of marble, huge, huge lump of marble, piece of marble. All he did was remove what wasn't the statue, and the beauty that emerged was uh, was priceless, absolutely priceless, magnificent beauty. But the way that this beauty emerged was a hammer and a chisel, and rubbing and grinding and hammering and chipping away. This is how bodhicitta. This is how. Uh, this is how bodhisattvas frequently work. They frequently work this way. So the teachings say you never know. You never know. Whoever you're encountering, you never know if they're bodhisattva or not. You never know if they're there to benefit you or not. So therefore, what we do, ideally, is we, uh, we respect everyone. We respect everyone. We come with a level of respect. We listen to everyone. We listen. We note what they're saying, what they're doing, and we ask ourselves, what can I learn? What can I learn? This is humility. Wonderful. The wonderful, wonderful quality of humility. 
here in our culture, humble is sometimes looked upon as weakness. To have humility is to be looked upon as being, being, you know, you can be pushed around. You're humble. You don't speak up for yourself. You're not loud and boisterous and and uh, aggressive, but you're humble, like like you're meek, humble. Humility from the Tibetan side is an incredibly wonderful quality, and attitude to have and to maintain and and keep with you, keep active in your mind at all times. Because humility simply means that you understand that whoever you're with and wherever you are, you have the capability. Uh, they have the capability to teach you something. Everywhere you go, everyone you speak to has someone to teach you. There's has something to teach you. There's something to be learned. This is the attitude of, of humility. And it's very much a, a fundamental precursor, if you will, or a, a requirement. The mind, the mind that is that is seeking bodhicitta, the mind that is seeking perfect happiness and compassion, the mind that is seeking to be awakened, fully awakened, is the mind that must, must cultivate an attitude of humility with which to take into each and every moment, each and every experience, each and every occasion of, of life to, uh, to bring that, to learn and to show that as well to others. You know, again, the this idea of humility, and you might be sensing perhaps the, uh, the notion of equanimity, kind of seeing ourselves as the same as everyone, everyone seeing themselves similar to us. Whether, whatever good things, whatever useful things that we want for ourselves, just remember, others want them just as much. You know, we work hard bringing about our own happiness and our own comfort. Just as we do that, we should consider doing the same to bring about others' happiness and comfort too. Just like we would try to avoid even the slightest of suffering for ourselves, perhaps we too can strive to prevent others from having to suffer even the slightest harm. You know, in short, seeing or beginning to see very little distinction, if any distinction, between yourself and all living creatures, we make it our sole mission. This is the Bodhisattva mission. We make it our sole mission to find ways of making each one of them happy now and for all time. The, the qualities, the stepping stones of Bodhicitta, the enlightened mind, are compassion and equanimity and love and joy for qualities of bodhicitta. They, uh, they act as catalysts for spiritual development. They dissolve self-centeredness, create a sense of connectivity with all, with all sentient, with all living, with all living beings. Dalai Lama talks a lot. You all know about the Dalai Lama. We'll have a, we'll have a special program. The Dalai Lama's birthday comes in the beginning of July so that's just, uh, you know, five weeks away. And he is going to be 83 years old. He was born in 1935. So he'll be celebrating his 83rd birthday. We'll be doing a program on the Dalai Lama. We'll tell you all about him. Tell you about his life.
quite interesting, as, as some of you may be aware. Some of his ideas, his, uh, you know, he's a Nobel Peace Prize winner. He is perhaps the most iconic person on the planet, or certainly one of them. And, you know, he's, he's, he's taught, he's co written or co-authored over 170 books. He is a, uh, he's a remarkable, he's a remarkable man. And he's very practical. That's the thing about the Dalai Lama is that he's, he's working on, a, on an incredibly beautiful plane of existence. Enlightened mind, bodhicitta perfect compassion and wisdom and but yet he's a uh, you know he's an aging man he's a a human being with a sense of humor and and some really really important ideas that he tries to communicate and he does very successfully communicate wherever he goes often communicating not by what he says but communicating by what he does the Dalai Lama is listened to. Certainly, he is listened to when he speaks, when he teaches. We listen carefully to what he says. But I think just as importantly, we watch him. We watch the Dalai Lama. We watch how he is with people. We watch how he looks at people, how he speaks to people, how he listens to people. He is a, uh, he's an incredible role model, a role model of the enlightened mind, of the elegant mind, of the awakened mind, the Dalai Lama. And he says that, you know, enlightenment may be the final object of attainment. It's the goal of this particular path, the Tibetan path. But at this moment, it's difficult. It's hard, it's hard to reach. So what do we do? Well, there's the, the practical and realistic aim of compassion, a warm heart, serving others, other people, other beings, helping others, respecting others, being less selfish. By practicing these, Dalai Lama says, we can gain benefit and we can gain happiness that remains longer with us. If we investigate the purpose of life and with the motivation that results from this inquiry, if we develop a good heart, a heart of compassion, a heart of love, a heart of bodhicitta. He says, using our life in this way, each day becomes useful. Each day becomes more meaningful. Each day becomes happier. And perhaps most importantly, each day becomes a visual example for the others in our life our neighbors and our co-workers, our family members and our children to, to witness and to perhaps be in turn inspired by and motivated by, you know, to reflect outward these qualities for others to see. And you never know, you never know what another person is going to see, what is going to resonate with them, what is going to, what is going to ring their bell and just perhaps change their direction a little bit into something perhaps less self-centered, less, uh, less angry, less frustrated, less depressed, less unhappy. You just, you just never, never know. You know, one of the beautiful ideas, one of the beautiful concepts that come out of these practices is the idea of our, of our mind as being a uh, jewel a beautiful, brilliant, let's say a diamond, a beautiful, beautiful, brilliant diamond. 
And every time we act with, in, with, with beneficial intention, every time we're skillful, every time we're compassionate, every time we're joyful and, and beneficial to others, each time we do that, we're, we're, we're cutting another facet into this jewel of our mind. And as you know, it is the facets that make a diamond brilliant. It's the facets that make diamonds beautiful, that, that reflect light so magnificently. So here we have this, uh, this mind. It's being seen by everyone in terms of, you know, what we do and how we do it and why we do it. And we have this, this path, this path of elegance that we can periodically over and over and over cut new facets, brilliant facets into our mind, reflectors for others to see, for others to, to enjoy, for others to be motivated by, to be affected by. This is truly, this is the elegant mind. This is exactly what we're speaking about when we, when we, uh, when we broadcast this program. I've told the story before. There were lots and lots of, of titles for this program that we talked over at Valley Radio. And, you know, what are we going to call this? It, it goes in a lot of different places, a lot of different directions. What are we going to call it? And we settled on the elegant mind. The elegant mind, not because my mind is elegant and not because anybody at the radio station's mind is particularly elegant. It's because everyone has the potential. Every one of us has elegance within the mind every one of us but just like a diamond a diamond that has not been cut a diamond that has not been faceted is not brilliant it's 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 powerful it's strong there's no doubt diamond is the strongest the strongest natural material but it's not brilliant it's not reflective until it's worked on until it's polished until the, until the facets are cut to allow the reflection, the transference and the reflection of beautiful light. And then the elegance of the diamond becomes more and more and more emergent, more visible, more dazzling, more motivational. That's what this program, The Elegant Mind, is all about. Your mind is elegant. My mind is elegant. At every moment, we can be doing things, thinking, intending, acting, doing things to bring the elegance to the surface, to project the elegance, to reflect the elegance. That is the elegant mind. To cultivate the elegant mind is a pure motivation, a pure motivation much in the same way that bodhicitta, the, the determination to cultivate enlightenment, just like Siddhartha did so many years ago, to cultivate enlightenment, to understand perfectly why beings suffer confusions and how to alleviate those sufferings and those confusions. This is the pure motivation it is profound and simple. It's bodhicitta. 
We aim to become enlightened in order to help others attain enlightenment. It is the elegant mind. So this is Mark Winwood, and we've bounced around a couple of different places today, from the lower Snoqualmie Valley to sitting under a tree in India to the uh, music of Bobby Vega coming out of San Francisco. And thank you so very much for listening. Remember, the Chenrizik Project is sponsoring the film festival free of charge and free popcorn uh, for anyone who would like to come down to the Duval Visitor Center on right on Main Street in Duval on Saturday, June 9th. Our films begin at 1 p.m., and we'll be, uh, there are four films, we'll have a dinner break as well, and time in between the films for discussion. Films will end around 9.30, there's four films, and you can learn more about uh, the starting times if you go to, to our website, chenrizigproject.org. There's a link right on the front page to uh, see the flyer, our film festival flyer. We'll give you all the information that you need. Once again, if you would like to ask a question, participate in this program, uh, please uh, send me an email, theelegantmind at valley1049.org, and I will. I would love to hear from. I'd love to hear from you either way, good or bad, supportive or critical. Well, actually, criti criticism is supportive if it's done in that with that intention. But please be in touch. This is this is Valley. Valley 104.9. This is community radio, and community radio is by its nature collaborative. It is not one way. It's, it's two way. Collaborative. This is collaborative radio, community radio 104.9. My name is Mark Winwood, and I wish you all a, a happy Memorial Day, a mindful Memorial Day, and come the 29th, Tuesday, if you look up in the sky at night and that moon, that beautiful moon, full moon, is shining bright and brilliant, perhaps you can see that as a metaphor, as a reflection of your own mind, shining, reflective, brilliant, and beautiful. The elegant moon, the elegant mind. This is Mark Winwood once again. Thank you and we'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.